Hey everyone, this is Chad, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to invite you to our Easter service. I know that for many of you, Easter seems like a really long time away, but it's not. It's coming up on April 12th, and I hope you'll consider celebrating it with us. I really like our Easter service. It's a cool blend of modern and traditional, and it's followed by a really incredible brunch that's catered by a catering company here in Wilsonville called Wilsonville Catering Company. I would love to have you join us, and you can learn all the information that you need to learn in order to do that by visiting wilsonville.church slash easter that's wilsonville.church slash easter if you'll head over to that website and you'll let us know that you're coming then we will have a special gift waiting for you at the easter service an easter basket of sorts and we'll make sure that we do everything we can to make your visit as comfortable as possible so please head over to wilsonville.church slash easter to learn more and hopefully let us know you're coming again thanks for taking some time to listen to this sermon I hope that it helps you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. This story I, I love, and I've always loved it since I was a kid. And we're focusing in on these words that Jesus says while he is hanging on the cross, dying for the sins of the world. And, and there's this story that surrounds these second words that I think is one of the most beautiful things in, in all of Scripture. And uh, as, I, as I studied this week and prepared... Uh, to preach this sermon, I, I just thought like this, like if I, if people aren't impacted after I preach this sermon, then I totally messed up, you know? It's like if I'm preaching from somewhere in Deuteronomy or whatever, like I really gotta make you feel like it's important, but this one, just when you read it, you sense, even if you don't know why, you just sense that it is incredibly important and that that more than even we read in this beautiful story is happening uh then then we kind of first at first glance we even can grasp a hold of in fact i would offer that there's a ton going on in this that uh, that we won't even get to today because it's so profound and so important of a story one author said this this scene has inspired poets and painters you can't say that about every Bible verse or every Bible story, but you can say it about this story because it is so beautiful and, and so powerful. Uh, I just want to make a quick note here as we turn to this story, which is a story about the two criminals that hung next to Jesus as he died for the sins of the world. It's interesting to just note that Jesus is hung in the middle of them and, and that was a way in Roman culture of saying this is the worst criminal and a way of humiliating Jesus even further. It's also interesting to note that Jesus while living was mocked and uh, really disliked in some ways by religious leaders for hanging out with, with tax collectors and sinners as it's often said. And it is fitting here in our final, in the final moments of his life in this story we'll look at that, that not only did Jesus live and hang out with tax collectors and sinners, but now he dies with sinners. And that's really at the heart of this story. Luke 23, 39 through 43, I'll read all of it and then we'll, we'll break it down because I think it's too beautiful of a story not to read in its entirety. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. 
Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. One of these criminals Uh, One of them hanging with Jesus is mocking Jesus and the other is embracing Jesus. And and I think in in their words, we see uh, the contrast that exists all around us. The the difference between those who will embrace Jesus as their Savior and those who won't. But what we really see that's so beautiful are the final words of Jesus. And I want to look at all three of those things today. In verse 39, it said, One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. He's clearly mocking Jesus. The word for insult is interesting because it actually is the word that in the Bible is often translated as blasphemy, which goes beyond a simple insult. It goes beyond mocking somebody. It's a word that that refers to a disrespect of God, a mocking of God, if you will. And so in this in this interesting thing that's happening here we see that this guy is mocking Jesus but but as Luke records this for us I think he wants us to know that that it's a bigger deal than just simply uh, one person making fun of another or whatever this this is about the man one of the men hanging next to Jesus not recognizing the power of God in Jesus and not recognizing what Jesus had come to do The King James Version said that he railed on him. It's pretty harsh language, isn't it? I mean, this guy is up there mocking Jesus. It's also interesting to note that it's in the imperfect sense. And if you were here last week, you heard me talk about how in Greek, the imperfect often alludes to the idea that somebody is saying something over and over again. And, and in Jesus' words, last week we saw that, that, that very, it was very likely that he was saying, Father, forgive them over and over. Uh, but equally, this man apparently is continuing to hurl insults at Jesus. He's continuing to hurl insults at Jesus. But what is interesting to me is that he actually says things that are true. I mean, he's mocking Jesus. That is really clear. He's, he's, his intent here is to make fun of Jesus. But, but he says things that are true. He says, Jesus, you're the Messiah and, and you, you can save us. You can save us. But what he wants from Jesus is not what the Messiah is offering. It's, it's what most of the Jewish people of his time wanted from the Messiah. They wanted, they wanted something physical. They wanted him to make their lives better. This guy wants a simple prison break, right? Like, get me down from this cross and let me go on with my life. He doesn't recognize that Jesus is there not to save him from a cross, not to save him from physical death, but to save him from his sins. And that's where he really misses. This is true all around us today. I mean, people love the idea of Jesus, but often they don't want what Jesus really is offering. I mean, People want the ethical Christ or the social Christ or the teacher Christ or the prosperity Christ, but they really don't care much about the crucified Christ. You see, in this man's words, he's doing something that I think a lot of people do. He is, he is saying to Jesus, your death is less necessary than my blessing. 
And I think far too many churches are embracing this kind of messaging today. The prosperity of Jesus outweighs the importance of Jesus' horrific death for our sins on the cross. Paul said that he preached a Christ that was crucified, the crucified Christ. The second thief that we're going to see in a moment, he in essence is begging Jesus to stay on the cross in order to pay for the sins that he knows he has committed. And this man is saying, get off of the cross with me because I want, I want what you can give me in this world and not in the next. It's interesting to me because this is the same temptation that Jesus felt when he was praying just you know moments earlier in the garden of Gethsemane if you don't know the story Jesus went alone with just a few of his his friends just a few of his followers into a garden called Gethsemane and and, and there he went to pray and and he prayed in intense anguish to the point that he sweated drops of blood and and as he prays there what we see is him wrestling with with whether he is going to take the final steps of suffering the the pain and the consequence of hell on a cross for the sins of the world I mean he says to God the father in heaven if it's possible take this cup from me but not what I will what you will and Jesus is in anguish over what he's going to suffer and now he has a criminal on one side of him basically saying the same thing that was a temptation of Satan just moments earlier as he prayed in the garden get off the cross you don't have to go through this. Let's just get down. If you really are the Messiah, if you really have the power, then we can come down and we can be done with this and everything will be fine. And so this, this criminal, he falls right in line with Satan. He falls right in line with Peter who told Jesus, you'll never die for me. He falls right in line with the temptation that Jesus had faced over and over. Just don't go through it and it will be easier for you. There's really three problems with this man's response. First, rather than fearing God, he mocks God's instrument of salvation. That's a bad thing to do. I think that's a problem for many people today. They, they just... Just don't have any respect for God. And so it's easy to use the word Jesus as a swear word and to neglect the story altogether without ever thinking about whether it's real or whether it's important or whether it can change their lives. They just say, you know what, I don't care enough about God. I don't fear God. And this man apparently doesn't fear God either. He, he neglects to recognize Jesus' innocence. And we'll see that the other guy recognizes that. He treats Jesus just like equals, right? Like he's an equal with him. Like we're all hanging up here together. We're all in this together. We've all done something that deserves this. He does not recognize that Jesus is the sinless Savior. Jesus is the perfect Savior. Jesus never did anything wrong, let alone anything wrong that deserved the death that he is now facing on the cross. And three, he fails to understand that Jesus will not be that Jesus will be delivered from death. He fails to understand that, that this is not the end for Jesus. When Jesus breathes his final breath on that cross, the story is not over. We know that Easter is coming, but he did not recognize that. But the other criminal, in verses 40 through 42, but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into 
your kingdom. And again, these criminals are, are being killed for the crimes that they have committed. And they would have been no small crimes. They would have been crimes that were threats to the state. Uh, very likely they were violent crimes. Violent crimes. And, and this man recognizes that he is getting what he deserves. I mean, maybe we don't think that, you know, a violent criminal should get crucifixion. Maybe we've moved past that. But in the Roman world, he knew what the consequences were, and he had committed the crime anyway. And so as he hangs on this cross, he just recognizes, I deserve to be here, but this guy does not deserve to be here. I deserve to be here, but this guy does not. He recognizes what the other criminal did and that Jesus didn't deserve to die, that Jesus should stay on the cross because he is giving them salvation or offering them salvation and he recognizes that he needs Jesus and he recognizes that Jesus' death will not be final. There's this interesting thing that I don't know what to make of. Maybe you can tell me after the service what I should make of this. I did a whole long rabbit trail because of this um, I went down a long rabbit trail because of this, but, but this guy actually calls Jesus by name in this passage. That's not something I paid attention to as a kid. In all of my times reading this story, I've never paid attention to it, but it, but it is unique and it's interesting. He, he looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He turns his attention from the other criminal who he's saying, wait, don't you get what's happening here? Don't you understand? Like, how could you be mocking this guy? And then he turns his attention to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And I got really curious about the importance of that. Like, like why did he say Jesus? And why did it feel unique to me in general? Like, why did that stand out to me? Well, interestingly, at the very beginning of Jesus' life, like when Jesus is introduced to the world, we see that his name has importance. In Luke one thirty one, an angel is talking to Mary. Maybe you know this from Christmas. And he says, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. It's like the first declaration of Jesus' arrival on the scene. It says, look, you've got to call this guy Jesus. But in Matthew one, in, in Matthew one twenty one, an angel's talking to Joseph, and we see the, the reason for the name. We see the importance of the name. The angel says, "She will give birth to a son, and you are to forgive him, or you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins." And, and I can't help but wonder. This man hangs on the cross and he turns to Jesus and he doesn't say, hey guy. He doesn't just say, remember me. He says, Jesus. I can't help but wonder if Luke is taking us all the way back to the beginning of Jesus' life and saying, now that he's hanging on that cross, he's accomplishing the very thing he was born to do. I can't help but wonder if in the use of Jesus' name, this criminal is recognizing the very thing that the angel declared when Jesus was given his name, that he came to forgive people for their sins. And so he says, Jesus, uh, my savior in some ways, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I actually put this in really small print on my outline because I didn't know if I was going to tell you, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Because I, I saw this and I noticed that it was just interesting that, that Jesus' name was used there, I, I went to the book of Luke to see how often, how frequently people call Jesus by name. And, and what I discovered is it's, it's actually super rare in the 
uh, book of Luke for people to call, and in the gospel stories in general, for people to use Jesus' name when talking to Jesus. Obviously, the narrator says Jesus a lot. Like, there's 239 times that the name Jesus is used in the book of Luke. But most of the time, that's Luke saying, and then Jesus went here, and then Jesus said that, and then Jesus, you know, whatever. But there's only two other times when people look at Jesus and they, they say his name. One is about a, a leper who wants to be healed, and one is about a blind man who wants to be healed. And, and, and what's interesting in both of those stories that connects to our story today, both, both people feel really, seem really desperate for Jesus to do a work in their lives. And the story of one of them, uh, he's just screaming out for Jesus because he's, uh, Jesus is passing by and it's the blind man and he can't see Jesus and so he just yells out like, Jesus, you know, like because he needs to get his attention. But he's desperate, like this moment can't pass him. It's his one and only shot. It's his one and only chance. And if he misses, it's over. And I just wonder if there's a desperation. We know that a little bit, right? Because when we say somebody's name, it means like we're moving towards business. Like, like if I'm talking to my wife, be like, babe, 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 you know, and it's like, Bren, you know what I mean? Because like, it's like, I need your attention now. I need, I need you to hear me, right? I'll be like, huddy, huddy to my son, like calling him by nickname, Huds, Hudson, you know, like I need you to pay attention to me. And and I, I just wonder if, if both he's recognizing the salvation that Jesus is offering, but also demonstrating a desperation for the work of Jesus in his life when he turns to him and he says, Jesus, Jesus. Uh, He asked that Jesus will remember him, and that's an interesting note too. Just interesting language, right? Like, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. I think it would have said like, hey, get me in your kingdom too. I want to come too, you know, something like that. But this word remember is, is fascinating. It's just interesting that it sits there. It kind of is the key line, remember me. And, and if you look at the Old Testament, you find that this is a request, a common request of God's people in the Old Testament when they recognize that they need God to do something supernatural in their lives. Uh, uh, Hannah prays this when asking for a child. She's been barren. She wants to have a child, and, and she, she turns her attention to God, and she says, God, remember me. Uh, but I think, man, and this is, this is kind of a crazy story that connects, but I, I think that, that the connection here is closer to a guy named Samson, you might remember Samson, like Samson and Delilah, he's got long hair, he has strength because of his hair, he's not supposed to cut it, but he tells Delilah, he's one of the dumbest characters in all of scripture, like, I don't remember that as a kid, I grew up in a Christian home, and so I had a little Samson uh, doll, I don't like to call it that as a a boy, but you know, uh, I had a Samson doll, and he had a donkey's bone and uh, jawbone, because he killed a bunch of people with it, but man, he's like this, just kind of an idiot, and uh, and at the end of his life, he's locked up because he told the girl, like, you, I mean, she, he knew that she was trapping him, and he told this girl, if you cut my hair, I'll lose my strength. So then he ends up a prisoner to the Philistines, an enemy of, of God's people, the Israelites. And at the very end of this, there's like a giant banquet going on, and, and Samson has this, this prayer. He turns his attention to God for the first time in a long time, it seems. And in uh, Judges 16, 28, it says, Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more. Uh, In typical Samson fashion, 
he, he follows that. I didn't read it, but he just wants revenge on the people. And so it's not a good prayer to be modeled, like give me strength once more so I can push this pillar and it can all crumble down on the heads of these people and they can die with me. Uh, that's his prayer. But I, but I think Samson actually recognizes something that is to be modeled and I think is modeled in the criminal who hangs on the cross. I think that he understood that he had blatantly disobeyed God and that he was in this prison at the hands of the Philistine because he had not done the things that he was supposed to do. And I think the cry to God from Samson's heart is a cry, not that God had forgotten him, but that God would give him an undeserved gift. I think that Samson's request for God to remember him is basically a request that says, God, I know I don't deserve this. I know that I shouldn't have this. I know you have no reason to give me my strength again. I know that, that God, you have no responsibility here, that I deserve everything that's come my way. But if you would just remember me, if you would just offer me your grace. I think that's the same thing that the criminal on the cross next to Jesus is asking. I think he recognizes clearly that he deserves to be there. He says that, right? I'm getting what I deserve. And when he looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me, I think that what he is saying is simply this. You have no reason to pay attention to me. You have no reason to invite me to your kingdom. But I hope that you will anyway by your incredible grace. I think really he is asking for grace. This is what we all need to ask for. This is what makes the story of Jesus so good. We are like both criminals. We all have rejected God. We all face a, uh, an eternity in hell that we deserve. We all have broken our relationship with God by the decisions that we have made. And each and every one of us at some point in our lives needs to turn to God and just say, please remember me. And what we mean is not God, you know, pay attention because you've forgotten. We mean like I don't deserve for your attention. I don't deserve for you to forgive me. I don't deserve your blessing, but I'm hoping you will give it to me anyway. I'm going to tell you, there's something that makes this even more staggering that I never heard about growing up. Nobody ever told me this. But in Matthew 27, 41 through 44, we read about the criminals who who hung next to Jesus. And it's really interesting to see what we read there because he doesn't tell us the full story, but he gives us a glimpse of a different part of the story. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Isn't that interesting? That both of them are up there on the cross heaping insults at Jesus? Isn't it interesting that we have a picture in Matthew of two rebels both joining in the course of all the onlookers who are mocking Jesus for saying he was the son of God, which we believe he is? And the story this paints for us is that, that both of them are up there hanging next to Jesus and both of them are insulting Jesus, but one of them, the guy that we just read about, has a change of heart. I think that is so incredible. It makes what Jesus says more incredible. The idea that this man begins his time on the cross being crucified, mocking Jesus, and that at some point in the story says, wait a minute, 
There is something different about this man. And then he chooses to give him his life and to accept his gift of salvation. They also heaped insults on him. I mean, there's, there's two major questions here that kind of hang in the balance, I think. And the first is, what changed his heart, right? I mean, because it's a big moment. I mean, you think about the crowd below him all mocking Jesus, the other criminal on the other side of Jesus mocking Jesus. He's mocking Jesus. And then all of a sudden, something changes his heart that he is going to go against the grain, sociologists in many studies have shown us that it is hard for people to go against the crowd we all know that because of our experiences in grade school where we did things in middle school and high school we did things that we would never have thought of by ourselves let alone done by ourselves but because everybody else was doing it you you did it right And, and this criminal now says I'm going to go against the grain of this other criminal that's not that big a deal but the religious leaders that are looking up and mocking Jesus I'm going to go against the religious leaders in in my embracing of this guy who is hanging next to me on the cross what changed his heart there's only one good clue and it's the clue that we looked at last week he heard Jesus pray father forgive them isn't that an incredible picture One that every person should embrace. One that I hope every person will embrace. I mean, ashamed we can all hear our mocking voices, as the song says. But at some point, we have to recognize that Jesus is saying, Father, forgive them. And we must turn from mocking Jesus to embracing him and asking him to remember us, to offer his grace to us so that we may spend eternity with him. I think if you are a Christian, you should recognize that this is your story. You mocked Jesus, you rejected Jesus, you sinned against Jesus, and then you heard him say, Father, forgive them. You recognized his call for forgiveness, and then you turned and said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In this criminal, we see all of our stories. And they're all centered around the great, incredible prayer that we studied last week. Jesus looking down at the people who were nailing him to the cross and all who were mocking him and every person that had been responsible for his unjust arrest and trial. And he is saying, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. But here's the other question. What will Jesus' answer be? I know I've read it to you, but man, can you imagine if, if this ended a season of a, uh, of a TV show on Netflix, right? And, and this guy just turned to Jesus and said, Father, or I mean, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then it went black and you had to wait for a year for the next episode. I mean, you would just be like, what's he going to say here? I mean, how, I mean, this guy was mocking Jesus. Now he's not mocking Jesus. He's a hardened criminal, a violent criminal, most likely. And now he's all of a sudden just, you know, in the end of his life said like, hey, Jesus, could you let me in, you know? I mean, we don't even like that idea, and I'll return to that in a second, but, but the idea of people just accepting Jesus, you know, at, on their deathbed seems almost like, come on, like I've paid my dues, I've done my thing, how dare you? What is Jesus going to say? And this is what verse 43 says, Jesus answered him, I love this so much, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Isn't that beautiful? Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
before we focus on kind of the heart of that, it's interesting to note that the first word in Greek there is actually the word that we normally translate amen, the thing you say at the end of prayers. Uh, this word that, that usually translates amen kind of just means let it be. And, and I don't know if this is true, but, but authors have painted this incredible picture that I think could be true. I told you that Jesus has been facing this temptation. Is he going to go through with this or not? Is he going to die for the sins of the world or is he not going to die for the sins of the world? And now on the cross, he has two voices, you know, like the angel and the demon on the shoulders, right? One saying, let's get down and be done with this. And the other saying, continue on, but remember me when you're dead and remember me in, in your kingdom. And, and, and Jesus, first word here is amen. And many have said, this is the moment that we could be sure that Jesus was going to complete the task. He says, let it be. I'm going to go through with this. I'm going to get this done. I'm not coming down from here. It's sure. It's final. I will be the suffering servant for people's sins. Amen. Amen. Today you will be with me in paradise. Gold from Golgotha, which is a book on these seven sayings of Jesus. I think I might have mentioned it last week. It is really beautiful, and, and man, you should get a copy of it. But it says this about this interaction and these words. In the salvation of one of the thieves, vital theology finds one of its finest demonstrations. He says sacramentalism refuted the idea that we need to sacrifice ourselves in order to be saved. Purgatory refuted. Universalism refuted. Soul sleep refuted. We're not going to cover all of that today, but we will cover a bit of it. But I want to start with this, what I've already alluded to. This seems totally unfair. I mean, this seems totally unfair that this guy gets to go into heaven having done nothing right to deserve heaven right doesn't it seem unfair i mean think about the poor disciples peter's over in a corner crying at this point all sad because he's rejected jesus if you know the story of peter one of jesus best friends on earth rejects him three times says i don't even know that guy i don't even know him at all i don't, I've never even had anything to do with him three times he's over crying somewhere and now this criminal's hanging on the cross and he's getting the encouragement from jesus peter's probably wondering will i ever be with jesus again do i ever do i ever get a go to heaven someday do I, do I get to have a relationship with God? Did I blow it all? And this criminal's up on the cross hearing from Jesus who's saying, hey, today you will be with me in paradise. It seems completely unfair. Jesus has this parable that I'm not gonna read to you, but I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about it. It's called the parable of the workers uh, often. And it's, it's basically the story of, of a guy hiring workers and he says, I'll pay, you, uh, I'll pay you a certain amount. One denarius is what it says. I'll pay you $100, we'll say, to put it in our modern vernacular if you do this work for me today. And, and the people say, yeah, that's a great deal, whatever, I'll do it. And so they start to work. And then a few hours later, the guy goes out and he, he, he finds some more workers and he says, hey, if you'll work for me today, I'll pay you $100. And a few hours later, he does the same thing. At the end of the day, the, the first workers hired are thinking, well, I'm going to get more money. I'm going to get a better hourly rate. Like, I mean, it's more hours, not a better hourly rate. I'm going to get more money because I worked longer. And Jesus gives all of them $100 and, and the first workers are mad. Like, hey, I sweated, I labored, I was out in the sun all day. How dare these workers that got in at the very end, how dare them and get this money? And Jesus basically says, I'm giving you what, you what you worked for. You should be happy with that. 
but Jesus, see, this is the problem the religious leaders had with him oftentimes. He's focused on the grace. He's focused on how kind it is to give the $100 to the workers who just worked a few hours. But we as people can be so caught up in the unfairness of it that we fail to see how incredibly gracious it is. The story of this thief is not fair, it's gracious. It's Jesus looking at this guy who he knows does not deserve to go to heaven, who's never been baptized, who, who's never gone to church, who's never been to a religious service maybe, or at least stopped going at somewhere along the line. He never followed Jesus around while Jesus was walking on earth. I mean, there was a million different options for him to follow Jesus, but he hadn't done it and he had he rejected God and he'd been a criminal. And in his final hour of life, he just says, hey, let me end. And Jesus says, yes. Yes, you can be with me. Uh, this story is of such a powerful picture of grace that Charles Spurgeon, I don't know if you've heard of him, he is one of the world's greatest preachers. He was one of the world's greatest preachers. And uh, it's interesting, he has a book on this too, on these seven words. And, and he spends the entire chapter evangelizing he, he's trying to lead people to Jesus he's like not even talking about the details he's like if you who's reading this is not a Christian look at this story and become one if you who's reading this if you're not a follower of Jesus become one because this story shows us the incredible grace and salvation of Jesus I'm telling you like in this I mean we should just see this grace and we should recognize the grace of the gospel because we can forget it, right? We can forget it if we've been a Christian a long time, but in this guy's life, we see it so clearly and it reminds us of how gracious the entire story of Jesus is, that God came from heaven to earth in the form of Jesus, that he lived sinlessly, he lived perfectly, and then at the end of his perfect sinless life, he willingly, as we see in this story, went to the cross and chose, chose to be tortured and executed so that you might be forgiven for your sins. And then he rose again three days later and now he, he sits in heaven at the right hand of the Father saying, Father, forgive them. And the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, comes down and he calls us to embrace this gift of salvation. He calls us to turn our attention to God and say, please remember me. And we all should embrace that gospel. And if you have embraced that gospel, then you should recognize just how gracious it is because you, you, like the thief, did not deserve the salvation that Jesus offered you. And Jesus said, you'll be with me in paradise. I love that thought, the idea of paradise. I went to Hawaii last summer. I like that. I'm going to Disneyland in September, and I've said this in too many sermons that people think I'm weird, but Disneyland is what I picture heaven like, if you want to know. Disneyland, where I don't have to wait in line, um, and free food uh, at Disneyland. That's how, I, that's how I picture heaven. I know for some of you that sounds like hell, but... Uh, but for me, that's, that's it. Like, that's the end all be all. And if Jesus would have just said, today you'll be with me in Disneyland, I'll be like, sweet. Like, sign me up on the dotted line. We're good to go. Um, I don't know. In the book of Revelation, we see a description of heaven. And it's metaphorical in a lot of ways, but that doesn't mean it's unimportant, right? And it's described in terms of gold and beautiful ju jewels and clear water and a luscious tree filled with fruit. It's paradise. Jesus looks at this guy who's done nothing to deserve salvation and says, you'll be with me there. But it's also important that the with me is equally important to the paradise. 
I love what William Clow, who's uh, an author, said about this. He says, all heaven is in these two words, with me. What do we really know of heaven? What do we wish to know except that it is to be with Christ? I love that. What do we know of heaven except it is to be with the one who willingly died for our sins? That is the most incredible part of paradise. Man, just as I studied this week, I, I'm emotional about it now. Sometimes I don't get as emotional about things when I'm preaching as I do when I'm thinking about them ahead of time. But, um, uh, you know, it was pointed out that this, this guy on the cross is Jesus' last companion on earth and his first in heaven. And man, I just, I just uh, imagine what that was like that first moment in paradise together. And, I mean, what must the guy have felt and said and done? You know that song, I can only imagine if, if we can see it through the lens of a single character, right? Like this is the guy who goes from being nailed to a cross because he deserved it to breathing his last breath and then waking up with, with Jesus in paradise. And man, I don't know that there's a greater picture of grace in the entire Bible than this story because it shows that we can never earn our salvation. We can never deserve our salvation. We can never do enough to be saved by Jesus. All we can do is turn to him and give him our lives and and just call out, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. Please save me from my sins. Herbert Lockyer, who I'm going to quote several times here as we wind down, he says, In the morning in the state of guilt, at noon in a state of grace, during the night in a state of glory. And this is possible for everybody. All of us can look forward to glory the way that this man got to experience it. Charles Spurgeon says, in the words of Jesus, um, I bring a sinner with me. He is a sample of the rest. This man is a sample of us. Now, uh, one way we should not, one way we should not follow his example is we should not take this story and say, "I'll live for Jesus eventually." I thought a lot about that this week. How this story can be a story that almost compels people to just wait till their deathbed, have their fun while they're waiting, and and just you know at the end say, "Jesus, I'll I'll accept you and I'll follow you." I've said this before, but um, Katy Perry just there's this thing about her that bothers me and uh, she has Jesus tattooed on her wrists and, uh, and somebody in a magazine that I picked up at Hollywood Video. So this is how much this impacted me because uh, I'm still re- remembering it now. I'm still using it in sermons and it was at Hollywood Video in Wilsonville. Uh, I picked up this magazine and I read and somebody asked her and, and she, they said, why do you have Jesus there? And she said, it's something I come from and something I'll get back to. I'll just tell you, I know this thief would tell you if he could do it all again, that he would have embraced the hope and the peace and the joy and the love of Jesus far sooner than he did. I thought this, I don't know, he probably thinks it too, and that's one of the reasons that I picture that heavenly scene so beautifully because, I mean, what if Jesus would have been crucified the next day? Or what if this guy would have been crucified a day earlier? What if the schedules would have got mixed up? He'd be in hell and not in the ever-loving arms of Jesus. 
I tell you, it's that man embraced Jesus in that first moment in paradise. I just, I, I just picture him just hugging Jesus and weeping and worshiping Jesus. And then after all that good stuff was over, just going, whoa, that was close. <laughs> you know? There's a story of a, a minister who, who somebody actually just said to him, a pastor, that somebody, somebody said to him, like, the minister said, hey, you should embrace Jesus. And he said, well, uh, I'm not in a rush, you know. Think about the thief. And the, and the pastor said, which one? I think that's a beautiful antidote because you don't want to be like the other guy who, who rejected Jesus and, you know, maybe would have made a decision the next day. Herbert Lockyer again says, Jesus can save the unholy, the unfit, and the unclean, but the unwilling he cannot save. Here's the beautiful reality of this story. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter uh, how long you've rejected Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're, uh, if you're a criminal or if you're uh, uh, violent. It doesn't matter. What matters is whether or not you are going to be willing to let Jesus save you. Spurgeon says he is able to save the uttermost, for he saved the dying thief. Man, I hope that if you're not a Christian, you will give your life to Jesus. But if you are in Christian, if you are a Christian, I know it can be so easy to forget the incredible grace that Jesus has given us. But today, as we look at this story, we should be excited about how gracious our God is how loving he is, how he can change a life in a single moment for all of eternity. Lockyer, one dies for sin, one dies to sin, one dies in sin. A dying saint, a dying savior, a dying sinner. If you have not accepted Jesus, accept Jesus. If you feel like you don't deserve Jesus, well, you're not alone. But Jesus still loves you. I would say to all people, the disabled, the sick, the depressed, the beaten, the broken, the hopeless, the disliked, and the criminal, I would say to all of you that Jesus, Jesus wants to save you. And even more than that, Jesus wants to spend eternity in paradise with you. And so turn to him and cry out, remember me. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this story. Oh, man. Because I can see myself, God, so clearly in this criminal, mocking you, God, with my life, mocking you in my decisions, and then turning to you. And sometimes it's a daily thing for me, God, just having too long a periods where I neglect you and don't think about you and sin against you, and then, and then turning to you and saying, just please remember me. And you do, you do, and uh, you do, and you forgive me. So thank you for that, Jesus. Um, I pray, God, for all these people who fit, sit, are sitting in front of me, all who are listening online. If there are any, God, that have not embraced you as their Savior, that have never cried out to you, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I pray that they would do that right now. I pray that they would recognize, God, that, that, that when they leave this place, it could be too late, God. That, that they never know what's going to happen. That they could die tomorrow, God. And that they would embrace you today, God. That they would give you their lives today. That they would see you as the Savior today, Lord. Let them not wait another minute because another minute might be too long. 
But I also pray, God, for those who, who have not embraced you, that think they've sinned too much or, or rejected you too badly or, or drifted too far from you or, 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 or just, God, mocked you, maybe actually mocked you. And I pray that they would see in this story that they can come to you and that you will not put them through the ringer, that you won't leave them in their guilt, but that you will embrace them wholly and fully in an instant. Help them to know that and to give their lives to you, God, please, through your son Jesus and what he did on that cross. And finally, for those of us, Lord, who have embraced you maybe long ago, I pray that we would keep our attention, our sight on you, and we would always remember how ridiculously amazing your grace is. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.